the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. God had been faithful to keep all his promises to the children of Israel. He had given them victory over the many walled cities of Canaan, against the kings and armed chariots that stood up in defiance to God, and in fighting the giants that were scattered across the land. God kept his word in giving the land to the Canaanites. Last we saw that Joshua and Eleazar were casting lots to allow God to dictate to them how the land would be distributed among the tribes of Israel. Every tribe finally received their lot. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 20, verse 1. At this point in time in the book of Joshua, every tribe has received their assigned lot, which means there are only two things left to decide as it concerns the distribution of the land. Number one, where the cities of refuge will be, and number two, where the Levites will live. And so as we close out the assignment of these final cities, we come to the conclusion of the settling of the land. And so after 40 years of coming all the way out of Egypt, all the way through the desert, all the way through the conquest, despite Israel's sin and all the enemies in their path, God has kept his promise. He told Moses in the very beginning, when Moses said, Lord, you haven't done anything you said you'd do. And he said to him, Moses, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And I'm going to bring you into the land. And so here we'll see that God will have done everything that he said. And the reason that God can do that is because he never fails. So chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And the Lord also spoke unto Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spoke unto you by the hand of Moses. The word also there in verse 1 should be translated then. So in other words, after every tribe received their land, we studied that last week, and when Joshua knew where everyone in the nation would be settled, then God spoke to him and said, I want you to talk to the children of Israel and tell them to appoint out for you cities of refuge. Tell them that they must, the word appoint means they must offer or donate. So from out of their assigned lands, because there's no extra land left, there's no empty places in there for these people to settle. He says, from out of your lands, I want you to donate or offer, he says here, cities of refuge. These are asylum cities. Numbers chapter 35 and in Deuteronomy 19, we covered it in depth in those chapters, so you can get the CDs or, or check out the app or get it on the webpage. You can listen to those sermons if you want to go back to those. But in those passages, we saw that Moses commanded the nation to select six cities, three on this side of the Jordan, three on this side of the Jordan, to serve as asylum cities for those who were accused of murder when it was really 
only manslaughter. God's law treated murder seriously. It resulted in capital punishment if found guilty. There was no exception to that. If you premeditated it, if you meant harm against the person and you ended up killing them, then you were tried for murder and you received execution. You were punished by death. If the legal system ever compromised on this issue, God said it would bring judgment upon their land. He would remove his hand of blessing from their land. So they had to treat it seriously. But God's law also made a difference between murder, which would be causing someone's death due to intent to kill, or manslaughter, which refers to accidental death, where it wasn't premeditated. Manslaughter, it's not that you just got off scot-free, it just had a lesser consequence. And the lesser consequence was exile in one of these asylum cities. This idea of giving someone a lesser consequence for manslaughter went 100% against the cultural concept of revenge killing at this point of history in this place in the world. Back then, motive didn't matter to culture. If you killed my family member, whether it was an accident or not, tough. I am duty-bound to revenge my family member for what you did to them. And this is how it worked. It was Hatfield McCoys all the time, everywhere. So, I mean, if you did something to me, I got people staring at me. I guess I'm, I'm old. That was something in my day where it's always, you know, people reference these two families that are always fighting. Anyway, go look it up on wiki or something. That's how it was back then everywhere. In the Middle East today, in some parts of it, the Bedouin cultures and most Arabic cultures, it's still that way. If you hurt my family, I am duty-bound to harm you. Vengeance must be sought. So it didn't matter whether it was by accident or on purpose. If you killed someone, I was duty-bound to kill you. To solve that problem of of the culture and to ensure a fair trial, these asylum cities were set up. Verse 3. Why do you set it up? Why did Moses command you to set these up? That the slayer that kills, the person who caused the death, any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. So if you caused a person's death, unawares means accidentally and unwittingly, which means without skill or understanding. It means it was unintentional. You didn't premeditate it. You didn't preplan it. So it was an accident and you didn't do it with intentionally. If you did that, then you could flee to this city and there you could be safe, find asylum from, it says, the avenger of blood. Now, what's interesting about this phrase, avenger of blood, it's the same word for kinsman redeemer, Goel, the kinsman redeemer, which refers to when you you were in trouble or you had a need, a near kinsman could come alongside and pay your debt or help you out. This would frequently take place in marriage situations. The story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer rescuing Ruth from destitution because her husband is dead and there's no one who can take care of her. The kinsman redeemer concept, it doesn't just go that way. It also, the word is used for this as well. The reason it's used that way is because, well, revenge killing did kind of serve as a detriment to murder. You would always have a target on your back. You would be hunted your entire life by their family. And so it definitely was a detriment to murder. However, vigilante justice can very easily be warped. And so this was not the way God wanted it to happen. He wanted things to be done with the leadership, the judges who were appointed there to be unbiased and to render justice to either the person who is innocent or upon the person who is guilty. What's really cool about this is this is why Jesus alone is the only perfect kinsman redeemer. He's the only perfect kinsman redeemer because he took out his vengeance for our sin upon himself. 
Now we don't walk around with a target on our back because we've sinned against God. We're free to approach God. We're free to be forgiven. We're free to be raised up as a joint heir with his perfect son because he was perfectly just, perfectly righteous, and now he handled the situation. So he is the only perfect kinsman redeemer. But this is also why he will be the avenger of blood to those who don't run to him for refuge. Because while he has procured the way for us to be forgiven, to be raised up as joint heirs with him, he is also the one who will mete out justice to all those who do not take that redemption. So he is the perfect avenger of blood as well as the redeemer of of us. So he is the perfect Goel, which is why all of these stories, like Ruth and Boaz, they are beautiful, wonderful stories. Ruth and Boaz is a wonderful, true love story, not like anything you see in Hollywood today or Netflix or whatever, a true love story based on real love and not the garbage we see today. Jesus, that all points forward to him. They're all pictures of him and his love for us. Jesus, of course, being our asylum city means he's the only place of safety. This is why God will judge a Christ-rejecting world. Because if, if they don't run to him, leaving their old life behind, vengeance will eventually find you. The Bible says, you don't be deceived. God has not mocked. Your sin will find you out. You, you can't just think that God will ignore it. That's not the way it works. God is a righteous God, and he has to punish sin. How did this process of you coming to one of these cities of refuge work in Israel? Well, verse 4, it was, first off, the city was there to provide a new community for you when you fled there. It says, and when he does flee into one of those cities, he shall stand at the entering of the gate of the city, because that's where all the elders would be, the leaders of the city. That was kind of like the place where court was had, place where business was done, legal matters were settled, financial matters were settled, big financial matters. All types of business occurred right there in the gates of the city. When he flees there, he will stand at the entering of the gate of the city. He doesn't go right in. And there he shall declare his cause in the ears of the elders of the city. His cause means his situation. He'll declare a situation. Listen, I killed somebody, but it was an accident. I did not plan it. I am here to seek refuge. And the elders, the leaders of that community, that city of refuge, it says that when they hear this, they shall take him into the city. And then it says unto them. And they shall give him a place that he may dwell among them, a home. They have to give him a home that he can now dwell among them. They have to provide him with work, all these types of things. This is fascinating to me because Jesus, of course, he's our city of refuge. And when we get saved, he gives us a new life. He gives us new purpose. He gives us new meaning and he embraces us fully. He doesn't say, go sit in the corner. I know where you've been and I know what you've done. Go sit in the corner. He doesn't make any of us second-class Christians or backseat Christians. He gives us a home. He gives us a new name. He gives us a place in his family. He gives us a call to serve him, right? So that's really awesome. But here's the thing that kind of struck me. If we're the body of Christ, that's how we're to be for those who come here seeking asylum too, aren't we? Like we're not supposed to look and go, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know where your baggage is. We have to help them find a home here. We have to make them feel at home here, help them to find their place here, help them to understand what their calling is, how they can fit into this body of Christ. Amen? That's our job too. And what's really cool, all the imagery here is is really powerful because the cities of refuge, as we'll see in the next chapter, they're all cities where the priests live, cities where the Levites live. And of course, in the New Testament, we're what? Christians are called a kingdom of priests. That's our home. It's our place. It's our job to welcome them in when they come to Christ. They're coming seeking forgiveness. They're coming seeking asylum from their old life. It's our job to help them make a home here. Amen? Even if they're your boss and you hate them. To find this safety in this city, one of these cities, you had to leave every part of your old life behind, didn't you? Your family, your job 
possessions, everything. You could take your chances with the kinsman avenger, but here's the thing. It's not just about taking your chances with the kinsman avenger. By doing that, it means you refuse to take any consequences for your accidental failure, and that's not right either. I find that people are not usually offended by the idea of God punishing evil. In fact, most people are probably pretty excited about the idea of God ending evil or punishing evil. They just don't think they're part of that. What they really seem to have a problem with, at least when I'm conversing with folks, sharing my faith with them, is the idea of God punishing our mistakes, our imperfections. Well, nobody's perfect, right? I'm trying to be good. No one's perfect. What kind of God would be that cruel to send me to hell because I fail? I make mistakes. But see, this presupposes something. It presupposes that our mistakes aren't that bad. It presupposes that our mistakes aren't that harmful. And are we truly qualified to define what is that bad? Are we truly qualified to define what is evil and what really hurts someone else? It's easy to say things like, well, if he hadn't been on my property, I wouldn't have lost my temper with him. If he hadn't insulted me first, I wouldn't have hit him. We have lots of reasons to justify our wrong behavior and then term it an imperfection instead of an evil because we feel justified. It's easy to make a mistake like that. It's easy to have a shortcoming or a failure. But taking someone's life, even if it was by accident, is always an evil because that was never part of God's plan. At some point, somewhere, the person that killed the other person failed. And to not own up to that, that there's some failure, there's some ownership on your part is a very dangerous form of pride. We simply don't notice it in our own lives because most of us will not ever accidentally take someone else's life. And so we lower the bar. We look at this and we go, of course that's a failure. I mean, you killed someone, even if it was by mistake. But we lower the bar because we think, well, I just lost my temper or I was unkind. And we say, well, it's not that big a deal. And what we don't, I think, fully grasp and fully understand is the holiness of God. We say, well, I just accidentally lose my temper sometimes or I'm just unkind sometimes or I just forget my commitments sometimes. That it's done by accident doesn't make it any easier for those affected. It doesn't make it any less hurtful to those who are wronged. It's not like someone comes up to me and goes, oh, man, I didn't mean to run over your house. I did it by accident. And I just go, oh, it's by accident? I get it. No problem. We'll, we'll recover. Pull our pants up and handle this. I mean, it's not like it changes how I feel. It's funny how kids do that. Like, I did that one as a kid. Like, you'd punch your brother or whatever, something like that, and he'd come out crying to mom. And what do you come out screaming right afterwards? It was an accident. It was an accident. Because somehow you think in your mind, if mom hears it's an accident, she'll be like, oh, it was an accident. Well, stuff happens. He doesn't have an eyeball anymore, but stuff happens. Worst spanking I ever got was when we were on the top bunk bed, and my brother just happened to fall off. It was an accident. That didn't go well with mom and dad because I don't remember what apartment store we were in when I was young. My baby brother at the time, I was chasing him around and they've changed the way they do things these days. They used to, back then, they had very sharp corners where they would stack stuff on and uh, I was chasing him you know, around the store, goofing around and, and he ran right into one of those corners. I've never seen that much blood in my life, never. And of course, you know, he has to go to the hospital, get stitches, all sorts of things and I felt awful. That was by accident. But that didn't lower the bill at the hospital. It didn't make him get any less stitches. It didn't create any less heartache for my mom and dad. And you know, that was something that stuck with me that day because I remember thinking to myself, this is my fault. This is my fault. I should not have been chasing him in a place where it wasn't safe. It's on me. And I didn't wake up in the morning and go, I'm gonna get my brother stitches. But I knew in my heart 
I had ownership of some of this, even if it wasn't done on purpose. And that had a profound effect upon me moving forward in my life. I don't think moving forward very much after that, I said, well, it was by accident. I had a profound sense of my own failure and my own frailties at that point in time after that moment that deeply impacted me because I knew if I hadn't been chasing them, that would have never happened. And that's the concept here. Yes, certain sins are worse than others. And the fact that it's not manslaughter is better than maybe losing your temper a little bit or being unkind to someone. I get that. But that doesn't make lesser sins small things. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Just because certain sins are not as deep as murder or manslaughter or anything like that, that doesn't make them small things. And God's law was given to teach us this truth. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, he says, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Everything God said is good. His standard, it's, it's a good way to live. That's, that's how it should be. So was then that which is good made death unto me? He's saying, because I break it, because I fail. Is it the cause of why I'm lost now? He goes, God forbid. It's not the law's problem, but it's sin. That it might appear sin, working death in me by that which was good. So that sin, by the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. What's Paul saying there? Paul's saying is that God gave us his law, God gave us his word, to shine a big, huge light on the reality of our sin. So that none of us would ever go, well, it's just a lie. You know, I just lost my temper. But so that every single one of us, we would see it and we would go, ah, this is what nailed Jesus to the cross. This is an affront to God. This is offensive to him. It's ugly to him. It's horrible. It hurts others. It hurts him. It hurts me. And he created me. He loves me. He has a better plan for me than this. And I've basically just thumbed my nose and said, it's not that important to me. That makes it a big deal. That sin would be seen as exceedingly sinful is why God gave us his law. When I first start sharing the gospel with people and I'll I'll start going into the Ten Commandments, I'll say, hey, listen, you ever told a lie? (laughs) Who who hasn't? And what what does that make you? Sinner. It's funny how we're okay being called a sinner. But then when I look at them and I go, no, 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 specifically. Oh, it's a lot harder to say liar. You see their face start, they just screw up their face a little bit and they're like, I'm not, I'm not a liar, but that makes me a liar, huh? Because we don't perceive ourselves as liars. And so then when I go to the next one, I say, have you ever stolen anything regardless of the value? Well, yeah. And you can see, man, you can see it, their face harden because they know what I'm gonna ask next. What does that make you? Thief. We don't use those words for us. We, we dress it all in nicer ways. We know, well, wow, you know, I lost my temper. No, you are out of control. That's what you were. You decided it was okay for you to unleash upon that person someone else God created because you felt like it. Ooh, that doesn't sound pretty. It sounds a lot better just to say I lost my temper. So God's law is there for us to shine a big light so that sin, we can't get away with going, well, it's just a small thing. But we realize and go, no, it's, it's really ugly. It's really bad. What happens now when he comes in, they embrace him, they bring him in and He accepts these consequences, this exile. What happens, though, if the kinsman avenger isn't satisfied with exile, but shows up at the asylum city demanding justice? Verse 5. And if the avenger of blood pursues after him, well, then they shall not deliver the slayer, the one who accidentally killed somebody, up into his hand, the avenger of blood's hand, because he smote his neighbor unwittingly. It wasn't premeditated. And he didn't hate him before time. 
So he shall dwell in that city. You don't give him up to the avenger of blood. When he comes here, I demand justice. You give him to me so I can take revenge on him like I'm supposed to. They say, no, we're not going to do that. He's going to live here until he can have a fair trial. He shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment. And until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days, then shall the slayer be able to return and come into his own city and unto his own house unto the city from where he had fled. The idea here is you're not going to assume guilt and its consequences when this guy comes demanding, no, I know he meant it, no, he did it. The concept of being presumed innocent before guilty is not unique to our Constitution. It's not unique to our rights as United States citizens. That is something that was clearly here in Israeli thinking. I tell you, in this present day of social media, we would do good to remember that only God knows all things. I am blown away. If you've thought these things, please don't be offended. I'm blown away by the amount of people who are convinced that Barack Obama was the Antichrist. I'm blown away by the amount of people who knew absolutely he was a Muslim. I am blown away by the people who would come to me and say, well, I, I know Donald Trump is a, is a liar. I'm like, have you ever met the man? Either of the men. How can you come to me with this much confidence knowing about this person? Well, I read this article and I've read this. How do you know they're telling the truth? It's hearsay. It's hearsay. And so we're not to go and live our lives based on that determining truth based on hearsay. We don't know all things. Only God knows all things. People come to me and say, do you, do you think President Trump is good? I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Some of the things he does, I agree with. Some of the things he does, I don't agree with. I pray for him because I want him to do more things I agree with. More things the word of God agrees with. Same thing I prayed for the previous president and the one before that and the one before that. God, help him to be a godly man. Help him to be a shepherd to our people. Help him to follow you. Help him to hear your voice. Watch over him, protect him, give him wisdom. It's not my job to know all the grimy details of their life from every little outlet out there that has more in common these days with a National Enquirer than any investigative reporting. People are condemned before they even get a shot. I don't want to be treated like that, ever. I don't want somebody to come to me and light me up and say, oh, I know who you are, Pastor Will. I've had people do that to me. When they come to me like that, sometimes I'm like, you don't have a clue who I am. You don't know me at all. And the words you just spoke, they are harmful. We need to be very careful. We don't know all things. And everybody deserves their day in court, no matter what horrible thing they've done. That's how Israel justice was supposed to be handled. And so, The congregation of judgment would decide if he was guilty or not. The phrase there, to stand before, it means to present oneself for evaluation to a superior. He is safe in this city until he is presented before the judges in the community, in the congregation, where they will decide uh, the legal dispute. If he's found innocent, that it's only manslaughter, well, then he doesn't get to just go home, even though it's proven he's innocent. He simply escapes capital punishment. He has to stay in the asylum city until the high priest dies. And when the high priest dies, he can go home. If that's two days, he can go home in two days. If it's 25 years, he can go home in 25 years. Why in the world until the high priest dies? There seems to be no explanation. It just says it. Every time it says it, it just says it with no explanation. There seems to be no explanation for this in Scripture, with maybe one exception. Jesus, the Bible says, is our great high priest, And his death set us free from the consequences of all of our sins, both our intentional sins and our unintentional sins. And so it's possible that the only reason this law existed wasn't for Israel's benefit, but to point forward to Christ's sacrifice, which would set us free and allow us to go home. Amen? God is a God of justice, a good judge who judges in truth and righteousness. 
The truth is, we are all sinners deserving of punishment, not because of what we did, but because of who we sinned against. All sin is against God. The beauty of God's grace is that He took on the penalty for our sins on the cross, becoming the ultimate kinsman redeemer, the one who stands in our place to pay our penalty. This is the God we serve, who loved us and gave Himself for us. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.